This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. 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 Let it bump, though. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Pavali, coming at you, as always, with my super-duper, incredibly esteemed, awesome, times awesome, spectaculario, fantabulous, magnificent, just straight, awesome again, co-host Andy Bailey. I'm running out of superlatives for him because he's just so great. Um, Today, we are getting to a mailbag. We want to thank you for just inundating us with questions. They were close to 100, so if not more than 100. So we're not going to get to all of them, obviously. But we appreciate your engagement, as always. We might have to think about doing just like a second mailbag off of this batch of questions for next week. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind everyone to please rate, subscribe, review us on iTunes. We very much appreciate it. That's the best way to support the podcast at this point. Um, your feedback is always appreciated. We love when those starred reviews just go up in uh, count too. It makes both me and Andy, uh, you know, v- very I don't, like tickly inside. I don't even know what the phrase would be on that. <laughs> tickly. Uh, it melts our hearts. I'm stumbling over my words. So I'm trying to blow through this um, intro so we can get to it. Um, also, do not forget that as a listener of this podcast, you can get 15% at the NBA Math Shop, which has all these fantastic designs. We're talking Giannis Attentacumpo with a unicorn head. Ditto for Kristaps Porzingis. We got Michael Jordan hitting the shot that he drilled over Russell against LeBron James because that's just awesome. We have LeBron blocking Michael Jordan. We have Rudy Gobert shirts. We have everything you could need. Just go to nbamath.com slash shop and punch in the promo code Benno, B-E-N-O. You should know how to spell that at this point because we talk about him at the end of every podcast. So that is mbamath.com slash shop. And at checkout, please enter the promo code Benno. Um, now that, that all that's out of the way, we can get started. The, the question that everyone wants to know, though, Andy, as usual, did you fill out a bracket this year? Oh, man. Um, that is a good question. It's so sporadic for me these these days or these years i can't remember i can't even remember if i did one last year but i did do this do one this morning because uh one of my friends asked me last night if i was going to fill one out otherwise i don't think i would have i did but i did one i did one by gut gut. and then i (laughs) then i did one by simple rating system um Mm. which is just strength of schedule with um like Point. point differential yeah combined so I've already missed Oklahoma in both of those. So that seems like sort of par for the course to lose lose one right off the bat. It's just um I don't know. I don't I don't get as psyched about March Madness as I did even like five years ago. It it just it's not that appealing to me. Is that crazy for a basketball guy to say that? No, because it, it, it really just never has resonated with me, like ever, maybe when I was younger and just had a bunch more time, but the NBA just monopolizes everything I do. When you look at just how the league is covered now from a social media and cultural and off-court standpoint, there's just no break, and I love that. I really don't dig into college until right around when the playoffs start. I'll go back and watch some games of the top prospects, try and get a feel for some of the deeper guys um, I'll talk to other people who have seen more college basketball so I can smarten up that way this is the first year in quite some time I did not do a bracket and I have to say it's liberating because you I end know up, it you, really is you end up caring even if you just fill it out like just however like I, I I didn't really ever do it with the specific science to it and meanwhile I did watch the end of the Oklahoma Rhode Island game before we started but when it tipped off I was in the middle of rewatching Heat Kings, and I was just like, "This is fine. I don't care." 
Yeah, Heat Kings, which is like at this point in the season, just not very meaningful, and it's that's still probably more compelling to me than these these games with college basketball right now. But we are not talking about college <laughs> basketball on this podcast, and believe you me, at this point of the year, you do not want my college basketball takes. That's why I have Cole yeah, Zilliger on the pod every don't, once in a while. He's, he he don't ask me, up me for advice either. I'll tell you who the number one pick is. And that's Luka Doncic, just because I, I want to impress you. So I'm although there's a there's like a groundswell for DeAndre Ayton now. There should be. He's really he, even, good. Yeah, he is. Even from guys who've had Doncic number one for all season, like uh, ESPN's Jonathan Gibbon even has Ayton number one now. I think so. It's there's a little tide turning. I think. I want the Magic to win the lottery just so they end up picking Ayton and they have Gordon <laughs> who they'll resign, and they also got Isaac. But alas. Um, we're going to kind of just tie in some news with some mailbag questions because uh, we like to do things like that and remain topical. So I'm going to start with the Spurs. It seems like every podcast and, and re-record twice a week, there's just a new update on Kawhi Leonard that contradicts the previous update, which had contradicted the update before that update. <laughs> and he was supposed to debut against the New Orleans Pelicans this week, allegedly, that, and now that's not happening anymore. So the Spurs are in kind of this precarious situation right now. They really needed that win. They got over the Magic the other day. They are still outside the Western Conference's playoff picture, just behind the Jazz. They're currently slated in ninth place. 538 basically gives them a coin toss's chance to make the playoffs. And uh, this question was asked by... Houston Corey, that is at Houston Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, 713, is Pop Lowkey gunning for the eighth seed to match up with Houston because he thinks he has the formula to knock them out? I'm going to say no because the Spurs <laughs> are in no position to tank to get any sort of seed. At this point, it almost feels like they'll be lucky to get in when you date back to the post-All-Star break. Every game after that, the Spurs are playing out the toughest schedule in the league, and their record against above 500 teams this year is not good. It is 13-24, and 24, which would be the worst record among Western Conference playoff teams against teams above uh, five, or teams that are 500 or better. The Clippers are pretty close at 12-23, and 23, but I actually do not expect the Clippers to make the playoffs. So I do not think Greg Popovich is... Uh, tanking so that he can get the eighth seed and face the Rockets because I don't think the Rockets are a good matchup for the Spurs, particularly without Kwai. Yeah, I agree. Um, I bookmarked this question too. It just, it's, <laughs> it would be like such a genius troll move and something that you would like to credit Greg Popovich for. It just seems like something he might think about doing, but it's just too risky, uh, especially with how deep the Western Conference is. Maybe if it was like the East is right now where there's like a, a pretty – well, there's a bigger cushion than I thought even. There's a big cushion between 8th and ninth in the East. And maybe if you're like in 8th place and you have five games up on ninth, or you're in 7th place and you have six games up on ninth or something, maybe you tank a couple games to try and find a matchup that's that's more favorable to you. Uh, but that's obviously not the case in the West. It's, it's every bit as crazy as it's been for the last couple weeks. There's now – Ninth place, San Antonio. There's two games separating them in fourth place, OKC. Um, and they're only a game up uh, on Denver, which is in, who is in 10th place. So it's just too crazy. And then the other thing is, I even if he feels like he has the formula to knock out Houston, um, I'm not sure the formula is the same as it's been in years past, if there is a formula for this Houston team. This is a different Rockets team uh, than the one that's been there the last – couple of years they can they can now slow it down a little bit they can beat you up a little bit um they can score with more than one guy in isolation uh they have all these switchy defenders now off the bench they can run these like all defense lineups that they've never had so i'm not sure whatever formula worked in the last couple of years is is still gonna carry them is i don't know if that makes sense but the long the long or the short answer is I, I no, I do not think Pop is low key gunning for the eight seed. It would be funny if he's just so confident that his team can flip a switch that yeah. that's what he's actually doing. The, and again, it's like the kind of thing that you like 
you would expect that of Pop probably more than any other coach. Right. If, if, it, was, if I, it was really happening. I think your most important point is, though, that's something you really only do if you have a couple games hold or have clinched a playoff yeah. spot, which they obviously have not done. The other Spurs question we're going to get to is from Eric Salinas. That's at Eric Sal underscore seven. Can the Spurs offload M- Patty Mills's contract this summer? Patty Mills has three years and $37 million left on his deal. I don't, that's not a bad deal to me. It's probably market value, if a little bit above, particularly if you're going to use him as a backup point guard. I'm assuming this question might just stem from his post uh, All Star break performance, where he's barely shooting 40% from the floor. He's still close to 36% from three. He doesn't get to the foul line a bunch, but he is shooting 93.3% from the foul line since the All Star break. I think they could if they wanted to. The issue is, and it'll be the same thing if, if you're looking to offload Pau Gasol's deal, I, there just aren't enough teams with cap space that are going to absorb uh, mm-hmm. these contracts, and that's going to be the biggest hurdle. If you're looking to move Patty Mills, I think you can absolutely move Patty Mills. I just don't think you're going to trade him into a team's cap space. Yeah, which would probably be a route that San Antonio would love to take. Um, the other thing, didn't we just go through this in the last episode? They're playing better when he's on the floor, right? They are since the all-star break. They're an average of plus 4.1 per game when he's on the floor, which is fine. I, I just, yeah. their issue is, and he's not the guy you want. If he's your third shot creator, you're golden. But if you need him to be, the second guy, it, there's a problem. He's too deferential, and he likes to spot up. You don't necessarily want him to be your pull-up shooter. When he's attacking on drives, his first instinct is his first, second, and third instincts. They seem to be to pass. And if you look at the percentage of uh, drives and on which he defers, I do not have it pulled up right now, but I looked at it the other day, and it's absolutely through the roof. And that might be what's exposing him. And it's exposing everybody on the Spurs roster because they only have LaMarcus Aldridge to shoulder this burden. If you have a healthy Leonard, it changes everything. And maybe it would be different even if Rudy Gay wasn't coming off an Achilles injury and, and dealt with um, some setbacks even this year. But but he is. He's not the same player. And I, I think that's the bigger issue here. The other thing for me is I don't know that you look to move patty mills this summer unless there are other deals that you have set up to create cap space because moving patty mills alone isn't going to set you up to have cap space and the spurs salary situation it's just so unique because if rudy gay opts out which at 8.8 million dollars next year i don't know if he's going to do that danny mills is owed 10 million dollars will he opt out you could renounce kyle anderson uh, yeah, sorry, Danny Green. Did I say Danny Granger? No, you said Danny Mills. Oh, all right. Well, I knew who you meant, but I was I just wanted to be sure because I knew Mills' salary was around there too. Yeah, so and it's just I mean you have Kyle Anderson who will be about a six point five million hold until his next contract. You could technically get some cap space, but you're one you're not going to do that if say Danny Green opts out. I don't think he's a player you just get rid of, and all of a sudden until you agree upon a contract, and yet unless you renounce his bird rights, his cap hold is fifteen million dollars until he signs that next contract. You're going to have to move Pau Gasol in conjunction with Patty Mills, basically, unless you're going to gut your team of Gay and Green uh, and Kyle Anderson in addition to Mills. So I just I wouldn't look to move him unless there are other mechanisms set up for some reason if they get in the running for LeBron James or Paul George or somebody like that. Yeah, my my like favorite destination for LeBron is still San Antonio, but I agree with you. It's it's going to be I think it's going to be hard for any team to basically trade for cap space this summer. It's it's just going to be at such a premium and I don't know who's going to want to sacrifice their cap space if they're one of those few teams that have it for a player like Patty Mills or Pau Gasol. So I'm with you there. Um, the last, I'm, I'm going gonna... to interrupt you just so we get to the last news item question uh, and then let you run with it. Uh, the Warriors are dealing with a ton of injuries and M. Terry at mterry 49 er asks, are the Warriors ridiculous amount of injuries bad luck or would most of these guys be playing if the playoffs started tomorrow? To just recap their situation, 
Stephen Curry is dealing with a right ankle sprain, is expected to be out until at least the end of March. Draymond Green missed the Warriors game against the Lakers because of soreness in his right shoulder. They don't know if he's going to suit up against the Kings. Patrick McCaw's Patrick McCaw has a fracture in his left wrist and isn't going to be back until the end of March at the earliest. Clay Thompson has a fracture in his right thumb and also won't be back until the end of March at the earliest. And David West has missed the last four games, I believe, due to assist on his right arm. I would say Curry, Green, and West would all be playing if the playoffs started today. And that's basically my stance on this. I don't know if they would be close to full strength. Maybe Clay Thompson could play. Uh, but a broken thumb on on his right hand is kind of a big deal. So I would think that that would force him to miss some games just because it is on his shooting hand. And I I don't really know what to go beyond that. I don't think they should be worried. I don't think they've necessarily conceded the number one seed either. Maybe it looks that way, but they're still only a game back in the win column of the Houston Rockets, and they don't have this insanely hard schedule to finish the year. So I that's just where I'm at w- with Golden State. I, I'm not too worried about them and, and until we until I see it. They would have to really implode in the playoffs or closer to the playoffs or be dealing with some more severe injuries for me to be truly concerned. Yeah, I'm not worried about it either. Um, I guess the ones that have the word fracture in their injury report, that, that makes sense that they'd be taking some time off. But I agree with you. I think some of these injuries they they would probably play through if it was the playoffs this team now um this will be their fourth year in a row with 60 plus wins i think right or is it fifth fourth. it's just the fourth yeah um it seems like they've been amazing forever right <laughs> yeah i mean that's and that's what i'm saying they've they've been through this over and over and over it seems like this is finally the year where they're kind of punting on the regular season which is crazy that a team that's punting on the regular season is still going to get to 60 um, that's how good this team is. But I think this is the first time they've really been like, eh, nagging injury, it's it's definitely not worth it to push it. And and that it's not gonna cost them anything, I don't think, unless I mean I've we've said it a bunch of times over the course of the season that Houston now has a real chance and maybe they have a little bit better chance if they have a game seven in Houston in the Western Conference Finals. Um but I don't think that's a big enough factor to to sort of dictate golden state's philosophy on this so i i think they're just kind of coasting through the regular season and that's i I think that's to be expected with how deep we are into this run now the only thing that might be mildly concerning at this point is anytime you hear stephen curry and ankle and apparently according to the athletics marcus thompson he's had four ankle flare-ups in a semi truncated span that's always something that's concerning but he Stephen Curry was talking to reporters on Wednesday and it just didn't seem like he gave a shit so I again I have to maybe that's another reason to just keep him shut down for a while too like if if it's like even remotely concerning just sit him until the playoffs (laughs) right or maybe like a game or two before the playoffs just so he can get his game yeah Yeah, for sure all right I have a question from underscore Matt Sanchez um and Matt used to run the Twitter handle for the Utah Jazz. His question is, who is the favorite for coach of the year? Um, I'm assuming he's probably steering me towards Quinn Snyder on this, um, which is understandable. I'm still going with Dwayne, C- Dwayne Casey, who we've talked about for this award a couple times over the course of the podcast. I think I think the way that he has developed the young talent to – to now give the Raptors, I think, the best bench in the league. Um, he's adapted Toronto's style of play a little bit this year. And they're just, and I have another question about Toronto later, so we can talk more about them later. But they are a really, really statistically strong team this year. So we'll, I'll get more into that later. But I think what maybe Matt is trying to get me to talk about is Quinn Snyder. And I think he's closing in. I Like I said, I'd still go Dwayne Casey, but. Here's my case for Snyder. Uh, Utah has the number two defense in the NBA right now. They're, they're I think, 0.7 points per 100 possessions behind the Celtics. And that's despite missing Rudy Gobert for 26 games. Um, when Gobert's on the floor, they're giving up fewer than 98 points per 100 possessions, which is about three better than the Celtics' number one defensive rating. And the other thing is, uh, I just looked this up this morning, and I was surprised. I did not expect it to be this high. 
Utah is fifth in the league in net rating for the whole season. It's not just this recent hot stretch. They're fifth overall for the whole season. And that's crazy to think after they lost both Hayward and Hill this summer. Again, they had the Gobert absence too. So it's basically like your three best players from last year have missed either all the season or a big chunk of it. And they're still fifth in the league in net rating. And then the last thing is that favors Gobert-Rubio combination was dead in the water like two months ago. Myself and, and just about everyone else who talks about the Jazz a lot or, or even talks about the NBA said, you can't play Favors and Gobert together. You certainly can't play them together with Rubio. Um, and that trio, since January 24th, Utah's plus 17.1 points per 100 possessions with them on the floor. The fact that he has figured out how to make that work and that he was patient enough to, uh, to give it time to start working, uh, I, I think that's a big point for his coach of the year candidacy too so i think i'm still probably going Dwayne casey um brad stevens should probably still be in the mix uh but i i think quinn snyder is definitely joining the conversation yeah him and terry stotts particularly if the blazers stotts end up is a good one too yeah clinching the number three seed in the western conference they they definitely deserve some love but you have to look at an entire season's body of work to me which is where casey's own argument becomes even stronger the other thing and this is just totally subjective and and specific only to me i place so much weight in a coach just making adjustments and evolving himself in a tangible way you look at the raptors this is and this is just in a nutshell 69.7 percent of their field goal attempts come at the rim or from beyond the arc that's up from 59 percent last season according to cleaning the glass they're in the top 10 in possessions used per 48 minutes this year, also in the top 10 in transition frequency, compared to 22nd and 17th, respectively, last year. That He has undergone wholesale changes in his coaching style. We had Masai Ujiri last year talking about a culture reset in Toronto. That so often includes hiring a different coach, putting in a, a bunch of new staff members. I have to give him credit for that and also for you go from leaning on veterans heavily to now your rotation stretches like 10, 11, 12 guys deep and he's saying that he's going to experiment that in the playoffs and you look at that all bench mob that has just been destroying opponents this year. It's one, the Raptors' second most used lineup and it's spearheaded by four players who are age 25 or younger, not one of whom has more than three seasons of experience. I just, that, and given that they're first place in the East and we're talking about the entire season, I have to respect what Quinn Snyder has done. The Jazz, I, things can go so many different ways because of the tiebreakers, but they're three wins behind the third place Blazers. Getting in, crazy. into one of those spots is not out of the question, and Quinn Snyder will certainly deserve some love. He would probably be second on my ballot right now. Him and Terry Stotts will be a really interesting uh, case to kind of jostle with uh, Brad Stevens I know will be on there as well but I, I think right now it's Dwayne Casey for me and I'm just fairly decisive on that yeah I think I'm going Casey too um all right do you have another question uh why don't you roll out another one since I commandeered the first three no that's fine uh we've got at Dunlap Sports uh Michael Dunlap asks how much do you believe media pressure actually affects players um, I don't, I don't know if there's like a, this is certainly an opinion question. Uh, but to me, it seems like it depends on the player. I, I felt like Kevin Durant's at least his first two or three appearances on the Bill Simmons podcast seemed like someone reacting to pressure from both media and fans. It was, it was, it just felt like he was going on there to explain himself and defend himself against people who were mad about the fact that he left the Thunder and went to the Warriors. Um, I, I think they even phrased it that way for the first episode. Like, he's he's basically just coming on here to defend himself. So, I, and of course, he has the burner accounts too. So, <laughs> there's certainly some evidence to suggest that there are players who, who are affected by this stuff. The other thing that this made me think about, this question, um, there's sometimes I see stuff in my notifications on Twitter that's like, Wow, how could you how could you say that to somebody that you've never met? I mean, it's just it's so crazy to me. 
and it really doesn't bother me that much. I, it really is more of just like a shock. It's some of the stuff that I see. And if I see stuff like that in my notifications, I, I can't imagine how much worse it would be for players. So if, if you are the kind of player who scrolls through your notifications on Twitter or Instagram or wherever else it is, um, I imagine that could have some kind of a toll on you. If you see that stuff, plus you have the pressure of trying to find a role on your team, um, hoping to get the minutes that you want, uh, the pressure of winning. It, it, there's just so many different things that factor into this. And um, so I think if, you, if you're just hit with all these different waves of, of things all the time, I think that the media pressure or the pressure from fans can absolutely be a part of that. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, and particularly for young players who are still trying to establish themselves in the in the league. I've talked to younger guys, and I'm also at the point now at 29 where most of the players in the league, the good ones, are going to be younger than I am anyway. And you almost forget that because they're. I don't really get starstruck anymore, but you just forget that some of these guys are so young; they're just looked at in the public eye far more often than any of us, and they make so much. They make a lot more money than any of us that it's sort of you for you sometimes forget their age and I've talked to younger players rookies sophomores who are seem like they're nervous talking to me who's a nobody and not because it's me but just because it's the media they're probably worried about what they're gonna say maybe they're just not used to giving interviews and I think your your point about the social media mentions is a fantastic one because there are some times and we've talked about this on the side in our in our super secret hardwood Knox text message thread that I'm sure people <laughs> would love to be able to hack into. There are stuff that's said on social media that gets to both of us at certain points. I couldn't imagine dealing with it as an athlete. And I think there a the bigger names are probably better at dealing with it because they're just so numb to it, with a few exceptions. You look at Kevin Durant who really seems to care about what people think. And we have to remember, these guys have their own securities as well. I think it's great that we're talking about uh, DeMar DeRozan kind of breaking the ice and, and talking about his panic attacks. It really helps us remember that these guys are humans. And both you and I make jokes on Twitter, but I won't. Like, and I've probably written them when I was earlier on in my career, but I will never write like unjustified hit pieces anymore because you have to remember that they're – that these are people. And I don't mean to say that I was just writing all these unjustified hit pieces, but you just have to think about more of what you're saying because they're dealing from so much shit from the fans that there's no reason for the media to pile onto it. And on the flip side, I could see why it would get frustrating someone like Russell Westbrook who constantly stonewalls the media or is disrespectful to, depending on his mood. I, I totally get that too. There's a give-and-take relationship. But I certainly do think that uh, the, the pressure from the media does impact certain players if not a lion's share of them yeah i totally agree with you so um thanks for that question michael dunlap that's a little bit different than uh a lot of the stuff that we usually answer on here so that was that was good yeah that was a fun one all right i've got one from at mr mr underscore wedig w-e-d-d-i-g and there was a bunch of questions like this one i just picked uh mr weddings because i feel like it kind of summed up the overall sentiment um he just says why do the bucks gotta be this way man <laughs> um, that this is an interesting team to me i i feel like they should definitely be better i i think they have one of the five best players in the world right now if not five certainly one of the 10 best players in yanni ana de um you sent me a tweet last night let me see if i can find it here it is in just last night's game alone, when Giannis was on the floor, uh, the Bucks had a net rating of plus 8.8. .8. In, in the seven minutes that he was off the floor, they had a net rating of minus 94, and they lost the game. Um, this is a season-long problem for them. They On the year, they're plus 4.8 when Giannis is on, and they're minus 9.4 when he's off. That's a huge swing. Um is is the simple answer to why do the Bucks got to be this way? Just that they don't have enough help off the bench. Um, the swing with Jabari is minus three point six when he's on and plus one and a half when he's off. You would think having a at least a name value star um, off the bench would help you with with some of that help behind Giannis. But this has been a season long problem. Uh, it's probably been a multiple 
seasons long problem. I there's there's probably not one simple answer to it, but at the moment it just appears that he needs more help. It it seemed like the coaching change reinvigorated them for a little bit, but they have sort of fallen back into some old habits, I think, in the last couple of weeks. So I, I just feel like there's a ton of different ways that we could go with this. It just um I think the the sort of easy one that I'm picking out here is that they just need at least one or two more guys off the bench that can sustain that team when Giannis is not on the floor. Yeah, uh, they they aren't as it's weird because they're not as aggressive on defense or at least recklessly aggressive since Jason Kidd was fired, and they're still dead last in the league in shot attempts given up at the rim frequency wise. That's not a great spot to be. They've done a little bit better of a job lim- limiting the number of corner threes, but there are just there seem to be a lot of small issues that coalesce into something larger. Since Prunty took over, they've turned the ball over a little bit too much in crunch time. Um, you look at you talked about their bench; they're dealing with injuries. You have Della Vadova and, and Brogdon have had issues. It doesn't seem like they have enough. This is weird to say. It doesn't seem like they have enough complimentary players on the team anymore. And again, part of that will be that they don't have Della Vadova, they don't have Brogdon, and those guys are nice ancillary devices. But you look at their biggest names. You have Giannis Attentacumpo, you have Eric Bledsoe, you have Chris Middleton and now Jabari Parker. Those guys aren't the quintessential all-off-ball weapons. They can do some stuff, use Giannis as the role man, but all those guys seem to be most comfortable with the ball in their hands. Chris Middleton probably comes closest to being the best complimentary weapon, and yet he can be kind of hesitant to shoot threes. Um, I've And there are times where he just wants to kind of post up or, or go ISO, and that's not what you need in this uh, in this Bucks offense. And he should be shooting, I, I mean, just so many more threes to me 30% of his shots are coming from beyond the arc it just it needs to be higher that's about par for his career and it's a it's slightly more than last year but I would say that number needs to be closer to like 40 or, or something around there and that's not saying you don't want him running some pick and roll or, or going at it in the post or or isoing but and he's shooting he's shooting and I still think he takes too many long mid-rangers but he's also in the 98th percentile of long mid-range efficiency, according to Cleaning the Glass. And he's, uh, he's, he, so he's efficient there, but just some of the sh- shots he takes, it's just not, you don't look at them and say, oh, they have all these complementary weapons. And that might involve tinkering the roster. Jabari Parker is still shooting well from three, so maybe there's something there. They're, they're just trying to still figure it all out, and their offense down the stretch of games, even though it can be statistically okay, and a lot of that is Giannis can create something from nothing, it's just it's hard to watch, and they're not super inventive. And, and until you get there, they might have this glass ceiling. And perhaps we overrated them too much leading into the season. Because I agree with you, they're certainly one of the the bigger underachievers in the league. They shouldn't worry about. They're not going to miss the playoffs, but they shouldn't be the seventh seed in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, all right, I've got one from at B Ball Scholars. He asks, do you believe the Raptors have an actual chance to win the East? And this is the question I was alluding to earlier. Um, The 2017-18 Raptors, they have the 27th best SRS ever. We mentioned SRS earlier. It's a simple rating system. Um, It's point differential and strength of schedule kind of combined into one number. 27th best in the history of the NBA. Uh, The only team with a better one, this season is the Houston Rockets. Um, Cleveland, who I think most people would still point to as, um, if not the favorite, to win the, the East, at least the team that will challenge the Raptors, they're 16th in SRS this season, and they're 764th all-time. Now, <laughs> obviously this is only one little part of the discussion. I think the Cleveland Cavaliers can certainly still hit another level in the playoffs, We've seen that enough times with LeBron James to know that it's it's not only possible, it's probably likely. Um, but I do feel like this Raptors team is also different than the ones we've seen in the last couple of years. They have certainly found another level. I think DeMar DeRozan has individually found another level. 
we've mentioned the bench a couple of times uh, in this podcast. It's that that bench is just loaded. They have so many guys sort of playing above their head with Fred Van Vliet and DeLon Wright and Jakob Pertl. Um, Pascal Siakam is giving them good minutes this season. They're they're so deep. They're so well coached. Um, I, I think this is the year that they can very, very seriously push the Cleveland Cavaliers. I'm with you. And it just I, – I, we kind of just touched on this earlier when we were talking about the coach of the year race. You you have to admire their depth. And I, I did misspoke before. Uh, their all-bench unit with Miles, Pirtle, Siakam, Van Fleet, and Dellen Wright is now the third most used lineup on the team. But still, that depth is incredible. That lineup in its 255 minutes this season has outscored opponents by a total – of 134 points. There are only ten, there are only 10 teams in the NBA that have outscored their opponents by 134 points on the season. <laughs> That's so insane. It's just the the Raptors like you said they're just so deep. Well, we do have to see. I'm just interested to see whether DeRozan and Kyle Lowry have that trademark playoff series together. But everything about this team screams real. Right down to, I've been very critical, or at least leading into the season and definitely at the beginning, of how they lack switchability in the front court. But Pirtle and Siakam, like, they're super switchable. With that, like, watching that all-bench unit, they're just very shifty, and, and they get around. Even when you point to some of these teams' weaknesses, they, they could stand to definitely hit uh, some more three-pointers. I believe they're 22nd in the league in three-point efficiency efficiency at 35.5%, they still have shooters. And it's I just it's tough to find a really crippling weakness for them. Again, it might be their three-point accuracy, but they're built to play so many different sort of styles. I do think that this could be the year that they win the East. I think they're for real. Um, I have a question here from Connor Howard that's at Connor Howard 5. If you are the Memphis Grizzlies, do you trade your first overall pick to the Celtics for Jalen Brown and next year's Sacramento pick. Remember in this scenario that you are the Grizzlies front office, so nothing is too stupid for them to consider. So it sounds like we're operating <laughs> under the assumption that the Grizzlies will win the lottery. Get the Yeah, get the first pick. Um, I think I say – so I we've mentioned a few times over the course of when we've had this podcast that I don't think either one of us really dive into a draft class until a few months before that draft. So I will admit up front that I do not know a lot about the 2019 NBA draft. Uh, it will have Zion Williamson, who's I think that's the guy I probably know the most about just because he's such a YouTube and Twitter sensation. Um, but this current draft, 2018, is just loaded uh, to the gills. And I, I don't know – I don't think I would be willing to give up this number one pick for Jalen Brown and what might be like the fourth or fifth pick next year. The other, I would rather have DeAndre Ayton or Luka Doncic. The other thing is, would Boston even want to do that deal? No, <laughs> probably not. So that, yeah, I wouldn't do it if I was the Grizzlies either. And they might, the Grizzlies might be bad enough next year. Who knows to have a better yeah, draft could. position than the Kings. So, and the Kings, they're not going to have an incentive to tank next year, so they'll be chasing wins. I don't know what that means for them in free agency, but their youngsters, Bogdanovich, De'Aaron Fox at points, they've they've just really shown some things. Uh, Frank Mason, who you know that I love, they could end up, they're not going to win a ton of games, but if what if they get like an eight or nine? That's just, it's probably not worth it. There's no clear, it doesn't seem like there's a consensus number one pick in this year's draft, but that's almost a good problem to have because, have because as you said it's just so loaded yeah there's still guys that are arguing for marvin bagley that i've seen um wow in articles so i mean there's the point i'm making is there's um you know there's four or five potential franchise changing talents um what if michael porter is suddenly like back to the guy he was supposed to be there's there's just so much talent in this draft i think this is the one i'd probably want to stick with if i if i landed that number one pick this question we both had singled out from Chris Martin. That's at Chris underscore Martin underscore. Looks like two underscores on it at the end. Um, what's the top three reasons the outside of Victor Oladipo that the Pacers are overachieving this season? 
uh, do we even call it overachieving at this point, or were we all just wrong? Or, or at least me. I know you were a little uh, bit more flattering of them. They've exceeded expectations, I, but I are we able to say, even, yeah. I would say even the people that were, like, mildly high on them, like, I, I would count myself there. I think they're overachieving my expectations, even. Um, they're in third right now, aren't they? Yeah, they're at the Cavaliers, which is just absolutely... Yeah, I think it's fair to say they're overachieving, regardless of... Unless you're just some diehard Pacers fan in Indiana who saw this coming. Um, so the things that kind of stand out to me for them, I'm there... I've, I've made this analogy before. Their shot selection on offense doesn't have the look and feel of a team that rates as one of the best offensive teams in the league. And yet when you watch them, it just seems to work. They lead the league, and this is one of my reasons, in long mid-range frequency. They're also shooting 43.2% on long mid-rangers, which is the fifth best mark in the league. But it's also just absurd when you consider that so many of their shots come from there. The other thing that and I'm, you watch them, and with the way Miles Turner can pop out, the same with Demantis Sabonis, it just seems to work. One of the other things for me, they do apply pressure to defenses in transition. After you're looking at what they do after a defensive rebound or forcing a turnover, they are in the top seven of transition frequency, and they're also in the top seven of transition efficiency. And that's going to help you get to the foul line at points, but it's really in part how Victor Oladipo has thrived. When you give the whole team that freedom, it just, it, it really helps you out. And just some of the, another thing for me, I think we probably need to pay more attention to what Boyan Bogdanovich has done this year offensively. He's shooting almost 40% from three, uh, 85.5% at the foul line, even though he doesn't necessarily get there a ton, and we, we talk about this team's lack of depth, but you've had Darren Collison, who returned, I thought, I couldn't believe that he came close to hitting that two- to three-week timeline after having his knee injury and, and is now back in ap- action. He's been great, but when you plugged Corey Joseph into the starting lineup, you, you also didn't miss a beat, and this might be a fourth reason or, or what have you. The Pacers aren't known as a good defensive team. They give up entirely way too many threes, but they're okay at dissuading looks at the rim. Their opponent uh, field goal attempt frequency at the rim is the eighth best in the league. And that's important because we look at how the Bucks have struggled and having a bad defensive shot profile can really hurt your ceiling. And so the fact that the Pacers, yes, they give up too many, um, excuse me, they give up too many looks uh, from beyond the arc, particularly from the corners. They're second to last in corner three-point frequency of their opponents, but they, they just do a nice job of coaxing opponents out of the paint and you can kind of see that they're going to get them to take. It's almost like the scheme isn't similar, but it's almost like what the Portland Trailblazers do a lot, where, where they kind of they trick teams into getting into no man's land. The Pacers don't do it as well because, again, there there are a lot of three-pointers they're giving up. But I, I think it, limiting attempts at the rim, even though they're not good at necessarily defending around the rim, that's a, that's a big part of their success, or at least an understated one. I agree with all that. Um here are my three reasons in no particular order. Um, they have balance. So after Oladipo's 18.3 shots per game, they have six players averaging between 10.6 field goal attempts and eight and a half field goal attempts per game. Um, and I think that sort of egalitarian approach to offense keeps everyone engaged. Um, it keeps defenses sort of on their toes. You can't, you can't focus on a ton of guys. Obviously, they have to focus on Oladipo, but after that, you can't you can't really leave anybody alone. Um, so I like their balance. I like their depth. They have eight guys that have played at least 500 minutes this season and are playing at a replacement level or or better. Um, eight man rotation is is kind of what you want for the playoffs. And there's a lot of teams in the NBA that have to play guys who are below replacement level and and players like Sabonis and Bogdanovich who were both below replacement level last year are both comfortably above. So you get, you get individual improvements and that certainly adds to the whole. And then the last one, I was just sort of like looking around team stats, looking for anything that really jumped out. Um, they're 11th in offense. They're 11th in defense. Uh, they don't shoot a ton of threes. It's like a lot of the stuff that we usually look for 
that would say, oh, that's that's the reason this team is sort of outperforming expectations. A lot of that didn't really jump off the page, but they are. Um, they do have the sixth lowest turnover percentage and the fifth highest opponent turnover possession uh, percentage. So we don't talk about this a ton in basketball. It is one of Dean Oliver's four factors, turnovers. But usually, if you're if you're talking about like turnover margin, you're talking about football. But it certainly seems to be helping um, the Pacers. They take care of the ball and they force the other team to turn it over. So they're getting extra possessions and um, you know, they're solid enough offensively and defensively that those extra offensive possessions uh, end up, you know, mattering for them. The the really quick final thing on them, they are sixth in defensive rating since January 1st, and they've creeped close to the top 10 overall on the season. Yeah, they're 11th right now. That was one thing that, that, that jumped out to me, that they're just every, sort of... Right, every time I looked earlier, they were just in the middle, and I assumed they had still been there. But to look at their success since January 1st, where they've been... 21 and 10 uh, over that span. That's they're, just... they're winning a lot of games they're not like expected to in the last couple of weeks, too. Like everybody just keeps waiting for them to drop off or, or to regress a little bit, and it's just not happening. No, a- apparently not. And I don't, I, Victor Oladipo is for real. It'll be interesting to see what to, their future is interesting because they have all the non guarantees. Um, Al Jefferson, Corey Joseph could be a free agent. Bogdanovich and Collison both have non guaranteed deals for this year. But the, uh, the real final thing on them, too, they have the second best crunch time net rating in the NBA. That t- oh, behind that only the Houston Rockets. And yet they're, they're 21 and 15 in crunch time. So they've played 36 games. They've been there fairly frequently then, but that yeah, record doesn't that record doesn't jump off the page at you either. 21 and 15. It's good. You want to have a team that is comfortable winning close games. So yeah. uh their assist percentage in crunch time by the way is 28.1%, dead last in the league. That's hysterical to me. Um we have time to blow through a couple more here. So do you want to throw one yeah out. i've got two more um at jacob rogero or rogero hopefully i'm pronouncing that right um he has clay thompson has a reputation as a great defensive player why is he at the very bottom in dps this season which is defensive points saved that's on nbamath.com um and it's like the defensive component of of adam frommel's total points added and there is a fairly simple explanation Defensive points saved is, is derived from defensive box plus minus on back, basketball reference. And basketball reference subtracts offensive box plus minus from total box plus minus to get defensive. Um, and they say right there on the website that basically reputation can trump um, defensive box plus minus. I think there are certain players where you see it and it makes total sense. Like Rudy Gobert is always great defensive box plus minus player. Um, but there are some guys like Clay Thompson who maybe don't get a ton of defensive rebounds and maybe don't get a ton of steals. Um, but they're obviously a good on ball defender when you watch them. They just, a lot of what they do in terms of on ball defense just doesn't translate to a box score. Um, so I think that would be my answer for that question. I don't know if you have anything to add to it. It's just that um, defense, the defensive box plus minus to me is more of a supplement than a, this, this is an answer to whether or not a guy is a good defensive player. Right. I, I agree with everything there and he's, it, it would help if he grabbed a ton of defensive rebounds because that inflates your score, but he doesn't and nor should he because he's, yeah. he's a guard effectively. You have to appreciate his versatility on the defensive end. He's a good one-on-one defender. Uh, he rates in the 79th percentile of isolation defense this year, which is a, you know, that he's someone that you can throw um, against pretty much anyone, some of the bigger wings, but the Warriors also have him kind of stashed on point guards. He's defended 255 pick and roll ball handler possessions this year. That's more than a guy like Eric Bledsoe, who wasn't playing for Iowa. It's more than Jimmy Butler. So to have someone. And he's in the 62nd percentile of uh, pick-and-roll ball handler defense. That's versatility that you just can't appreciate enough to me. And I think that we've hammered his defense, or at least his impact on the Warriors, 
to a point where he's almost become or written it off in some ways that he's almost become underrated as a defender. This isn't necessarily an Avery Bradley situation where I feel like there are a lot of caveats we have to find. Clay Thompson just feels like a good defender and he he's he's good on ball. I, I think he can be smart too. And to have someone who can just, oh, hey, Clay, just go guard point guards all game. And the fact that he can do it, that's going that's a huge, huge deal when you look at a playoff atmosphere. Yeah. Um, I think my shortest answer on that would just be great great offense leads to more numbers in a box score than great defense does. Right, and that's why I think it's—you also have to say you appreciate great offensive players. Like If you're going to have a one-way player, you'd rather him be spectacular on offense than defense because it's just inherently easier to impact the game on offense. Yeah, I agree. I have a question from Second Dan. Um, I'm just going to assume he named that Twitter handle after me because he can be <laughs> the first Dan. It's at second Dan underscore at the end. Do you think Paul George is going to end up leaving Oklahoma City? And if he does, what should the Thunder do this offseason to try and fix themselves? Here's my thing with Paul George. If he leaves, I honestly think it's because LeBron James went to the Lakers and he joined them. He joined him there. Otherwise, I don't see him leaving. I don't know that he is a guy that would sync up with the Philadelphia 76ers who with him would be absolutely fantastic by the way he he's our, yeah. he's a better fit for them than LeBron James just because of what he does off the ball if he leaves though the thunder they can't do anything really so yeah they wouldn't have cap space no, right no, i actually did the math uh if you remove his max cap hold 30.35 it's basically 30.4 30.3 million dollars they're still, after you bake in the minimum placeholders, and I'm, I'm estimating these on the lower end because they go up every season, the Thunder are still going to have more than $119.2 million on wow. their books. And that's, I'm assuming Carmelo Anthony doesn't uh, decline his early termination option, which is worth $27.9 million, hence why I don't think that he's going to exercise that. If he leaves, they'll they'll have cap space to do something with and they'll be appealing because they have Russell Westbrook, Steven Adams is underrated. But there this isn't the free agency class to go out and find a second star. Especially if if one of the, the stars of this free agency class is leaving your team. I don't I honestly don't know what they would do. It's not because I haven't thought about it. It's just because I think what you end up doing is you wait out Carmelo Anthony's contract. Maybe you see if there are things you can do with the trade deadline, but you look ahead to the summer of 2019 where you're, it'll be easier for you to dump salary. Maybe you can make a splash in free agency that way. That That's what I would think they'd do. I don't think I have anything to add to that one. Um, I have one that I have to get to from at RJ underscore Llama Love. Um, not sure I want to get into that Twitter handle, but... His question is better defender, Rudy Gobert, or the process? And this has become a question on Twitter lately, I think. Um, I, I think Joel Embiid has sort of been the front runner for defensive play, player of the year for most of the season, but I'm going to rattle off some numbers for you. Um, I'm ready. Utah's defensive rating is 8.1 points better when, when Gobert's on the floor. Philadelphia's is 6.1 better when Embiid's on the floor. Um, Gobert is eighth in field goal percentage allowed at the rim among players who contest at least five uh, shots at the rim per game. Embiid is third. Uh, Gobert is first in defensive real plus minus. Joel Embiid is ninth. Gobert tops Embiid in defensive box plus minus, steal percentage, block percentage, and Embiid has a slight edge in rebounding percentage. So that's like sort of the st statistical foundation. Um, I, both of these guys completely change what their teams are defensively when they're in the game. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure there's a wrong answer to this question, but to me, the most impactful defender in the league for the last two seasons now has been Rudy Gobert. I don't know if he's going to get to enough minutes. Um, by the end of the season to warrant like really, really serious consideration. But uh, if he, if he pushes right now, he's kind of on track to get around 1850 to 1900 and Kawhi won it one year with 2000. So if he gets there, um, I feel like he has to be talked about at least. And the last thing I'll say on this is Josh Eberle. He had a pretty funny tweet. He said, are the Joel Embiid fans who are arguing Oh, are the Joel Embiid fans who argued he should win Rookie of the Year despite games played also supporting Rudy Gobert for Defensive Player of the Year, asking for a friend? Um, 
<laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So I, I think Gobert is going to – he has to be in the conversation at the very least. Did he play enough minutes? Um, I'm going to say yes. If he, gets, if, he, if he plays every game from here on out and averages like 35 or 36 minutes in those games, um, I am probably going to be pounding the Rudy Gobert for Defensive Player of the Year drum. I don't have anything to add to what you said. I, I honestly think he belongs there. The minutes, uh, and I, I do think he's the more impactful defender overall, except I think Embiid has the higher defensive ceiling. And we have to cap, take into account that this is just Embiid's second season, essentially, and he's going to be a little bit better in space, I think, long-term than Rudy Gobert. Part of why, and Rudy Gobert's not incapable when he kind of has to step out of the restricted area, it's just that the Jazz's defensive scheme basically demands that they funnel players in to the restricted area, right? And you can correct me if I'm wrong there anyway. Like, you No, would. that's pretty much true, yeah. So, But that's just, I would pick Joel Embiid right now, but I, I fully admit that there's a chance... Uh, Rudy Gobert, I mean, it, like you said, if he crosses that minutes threshold, that this race, Defensive Player of the Year race, all of a sudden becomes something intriguing uh, to talk about. The last thing in 30 seconds or less, and this is a loaded question to give you in 30 seconds, but the quick at Vic TQ4, V-I-K TQ4, what franchise has the most potential in the next five years? Um, Probably could have done a whole podcast on this. Maybe we should, we should think about doing a podcast where we rank – the top teams the by best future. young cores. Here's here's the the names that jump uh, to the front of my mind. I think the Philadelphia 76ers are probably number one. Without you know looking too deep into it, we've you just mentioned a lot of stuff with Joel Embiid, and um, I think he's ridiculous. I also think Ben Simmons is absurd, and that one-two punch um, already one of the best two-man lineups in the NBA, and yeah, uh, Simmons is a rookie. They're both under 25 years old, so that's certainly very, very bright. The other one that's still really interesting to me, despite the fact that they've been like wildly frustrating for most of this season, is the Nuggets. Um, Harris, Murray, and Jokic is is a really intriguing young trio. You wouldn't have. I would probably go Boston, just because looking. They're at, super interesting too. Yeah, they, for sure. Just because of their. Their trade assets, the picks that they still have coming to them, um, their and coaching I, is fantastic in Brad Stevens. I'm a lot higher on the Lakers than I was like two months ago. Well, too. that's that's who I was going to get into really quick. Is I don't know, I wouldn't pick them over the Celtics. I don't think. And if you could tell me Joel Embiid is going to be healthy um, for the rest of his career, I wouldn't pick them over. Uh, the Sixers either. I do think they have a case for the number two spot though right now for me behind the Celtics just because they're, they've shown signs that they're going to get better on offense, but their defense is probably just, it, it's way better than we expected. And they have, the thing that keeps jumping out to me is so leading into their loss to the Warriors the other night, they were posting a top seven defensive rating in the minutes that Lonzo Ball and Isaiah Thomas shared the floor. And after that game, they're still hovering around about the league average defensive rating. When you play Thomas and Ball, that's more of a testament to Ball. He looks like he's going to be better defensively than everyone thought. And when you factor in that two of their three most used lineups together have come with Kyle Kuzma on the floor, who is not good defensively, that's huge. You have him, you have Ingram. Josh Hart is pretty frisky on that end. Julius Randle, if you keep him, has improved a great deal defensively this team has that nice defensive foundation and they're going to get better on offense just because we've seen the improvement uh i don't know what exactly their uh offensive rating is since lavar ball went off about uh, luke walton they (laughs) they are in the top 10 since then now that i just looked so that's that's going to be huge and and lonzo ball this isn't i don't think he's going to be i'm not saying i don't think i'm not guaranteeing he'll be a perennial hall of famer but if you if you have a guy like him who's playing defensively the way that he is now, he's so good at breaking up plays from behind. He's a lot smarter. He's fantastic on closing up on spot-up shooters. You get to do some really interesting things on the court. One, in terms of switchability, if you want to run out these smaller lineups because he is around the 6'5", 6'6", six six inch 
height range, but also to have, you can bring Isaiah Thomas back next season if your free agency plans go awry, and you could technically start him if you want to and still hope to have a league average defense. That's huge. We saw it work with the Celtics at points last year, and the, the fact that the Lakers have that type of talent and clout already, I think really just points toward their future. And the final thing would be Brandon Ingram has been sensational since those LeVar Ball comments before his hip injury as well. Yeah, I'm with you. That in the last during the last couple Laker games, I've even said on Twitter like, if if free agency fails and they don't get LeBron and or or Paul George or you know Demarcus Cousins, that was a weird way to pronounce Paul George, but um, <laughs> <laughs> they they are good enough now that I I would bet there's some Lakers fans that would be like, okay, that's fine. I'd I'd love to continue to watch this group develop. Um, there's some really exciting. Young talent on that team. Um, all right, unless you have any more that you're dying to get to right now, I think we can wrap up this mailbag. Thanks again to everyone who responded to the uh, tweet asking for questions. As, as always, you guys provide great stuff for us to talk about here on the show. Um, so thank you for that. If you want to continue to engage with us on Twitter, you know where Dan is at Dan Favelli, F-A-V-L-A-A-L-E. You know where I am, Andrew D. Bailey. Now I'm the one with the pronunciation problems. Um, the show is at Hardwood yeah, Knox. Yeah, Yanni. <laughs> the sponsor, I, I stand by that one. The sponsor is at NBA underscore math. Um, leave us ratings, reviews, subscriptions. Tell tell people you know to subscribe. And again, um, that you have that promo code at the NBA math shop. Uh, go look at the shirts there. I think you will be impressed. I think you will be tempted to buy something. And then when you remember that you get 15% off if you enter Beano, that temptation is going to – you're going to succumb to it. I just know that you are. Um, B-E-N-O is the promo code there. Uh, until next time, we leave you with the shout-out to the namesake of the promo code, Bino Udri. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to stay within budget when making updates to your bathroom. We do it right, too, by offering up to 20% off select toilets during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. Step up your style even more with floor tiles starting at just 49 cents a square foot. For your next bath project, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only.